This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Good evening. In just a few moments from now, President Biden is expected to talk and take questions from reporters about his summit meeting uh, this afternoon with China's President Xi Jinping. The schedule for the press conference has shifted throughout the evening, but it is now expected to begin very shortly. The two leaders spoke for about four hours today at a mansion just outside San Francisco in conjunction with APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, being held in that city. A senior American official saying the two leaders agreed to take steps to curb fentanyl production and restore communications between their two respective militaries. President Xi, for his part, saying afterwards, quote, planet Earth is big enough for the two countries to succeed, adding that one country turning its back on the other is not an option. CNN's MJ Lee is at the summit location for us. CNN's David Culver is in San Francisco. He reported from China for three years, including at the height of the pandemic. Also with a CNN contributor and Biden biographer, Evan Osnos, former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren, and CNN chief political correspondent, Dana Bash. So MJ, what's the White House saying about how the summit went? Well, you know, Anderson, as we wait for President Biden to come out any moment now for this solo press conference, I think it is abundantly clear that when he comes out, he is going to herald this summit as having been a success. Uh, it is clear that he is going to point to a few of the deliverables that the administration had laid out uh, leading into the summit, uh, namely the reestablishment of the military to military communications between the two countries, and then this uh, significant announcement on cracking down on fentanyl. Uh, but I think in the bigger picture, the president is likely to say that he has achieved sort of the overarching goal of hitting a reset on U.S.-China relations. Uh, both leaders, when we heard them speaking at the top of the summit, uh, making very clear that they agree that even though these are two countries with serious conflicts and areas of disagreement, uh, that what they do agree on is that the, the two countries uh, must be able to have uh, diplomacy, that there must be communication between the two countries so that they can avoid any misunderstandings and really dangerous situations where crises uh, might erupt. So I think uh, we are expected to hear President Biden talking about this uh, in terms of sort of the success coming out of this. Uh, that's not to say that uh, these conversations uh, did not touch on uh, tough issues, areas of disagreement. Uh, but again, I think it is abundantly clear that in terms of the big picture goal of hitting a reset on U.S.-China relations, uh, President President Biden and everyone on down, we are expected to hear uh, say that that goal was achieved and that there's going to be more conversations, that this is just the beginning of more conversations and more diplomacy in the months to come. David, how's the Chinese media describing the summit? Because China and its media have been railing against the U.S. for years. I mean, this does seem to be all of a huge shift. It was a major shift, Anderson, and today I had to go through some of the Chinese state media articles multiple times just to make sure I was reading it right, because in certainly the years I was living there, 2019 up until last year through the height of the pandemic, it was nothing positive towards the U.S. And what we have seen in the past 24 hours is almost a, a glowing pro-U.S. messaging coming from Chinese state media, and I'm sure even those reading that within China were a bit confused. In fact, some were even commenting on social media noticing the tone shift and how dramatic it was within their own country. But taking all of that aside, I, I'm, I'm really curious to see how they're going to portray it in the days to come, because that'll indicate where the Chinese Communist Party is perhaps trying to lead the narrative to, to, to go from here. And you, you hear from U.S. officials and, and perhaps 
a fresh start. I, I don't want to come across pessimistic on this, but deliverables have to come into action. And China has agreed to things in the past, and they can take steps towards something like cracking down on fentanyl or perhaps reestablishing communications between the two countries' militaries, which sound great. And they're certainly using all the right words in some of these Chinese state media outs that are readouts that are coming out right now. But you got to see the action follow. And, and I know China can mobilize literally overnight. We saw that when they locked down a city with a population three times the size of New York City. It was living in the midst of that. So when they want to do something, they can, and they can do it quickly. It's very different from the U.S., where there's a lot more bureaucracy. You have to go to public comment. And the Chinese way of doing things, if the party decides to go a certain direction, if Xi Jinping wants to do something specifically, it'll happen, Anderson. And David, in terms of fentanyl, I mean, you've, you've done a lot of reporting on the fentanyl pipeline from China. In terms of, of what China could actually do, how significant could it be? So when we think about fentanyl coming into the U.S., the direct link is Mexico at the southern border. You and I have talked about this in recent months, and that's a huge concern. We spent some time in Sinaloa with the Mexican army as they were trying to bust some of the labs. Interestingly enough, Anderson, after we did that report, Mexico's president said they don't make fentanyl in Mexico, and then reached out to President Xi Jinping asking for help when it comes to the ingredients to make fentanyl, what are known as the precursors. That's the source of it all, and that is within China, and it is really easily accessible. Our investigation showed how you can just log on to WeChat, communicate with some of these folks who are representing some of the precursor productions, and you can place an order and have it shipped really anywhere in the world that you want it, most of it going to Mexico. And even some of those folks who are working for those production factories will provide a how-to guide in making fentanyl. So this is going to take the Chinese government doing a serious crackdown. And again, Anderson, if they want to do it, they can do that. Yeah. Dan, in terms of, and, uh, and, and it looks like we have some activity. We saw Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken uh, getting seated. So it seems like the, the, uh, the president is very close. In terms of President Biden taking reporters' questions tonight, I mean, the stakes are very high for him, not just on China, but the Middle East, his reelection. Mm-hmm. All of it. This is very rare. Uh, and when I say this, I mean just having a press conference. And so it is going to be an opportunity for the reporters like MJ and others who cover him uh, on a regular basis to ask him, of course, about China and about what we just was, were hearing from David and MJ, but a lot of questions about uh, the U.S. policy and stance towards the Middle East. And also, as you mentioned, uh, the very place he seems to be, according to every single poll, not just national polls, but key battleground states of where he is uh, vis-a-vis the presumptive frontrunner on the Republican side, and that is Donald Trump. So a lot of opportunity, hopefully, uh, for many reporters to get questions because it is so rare that that happens with this president. Evan, I want to talk to you about the, the shift in tone by China toward the U.S. Uh, you recently wrote a, a really fascinating piece for The New Yorker titled China's Age of Malaise. Is, is that, I mean, what's driving China to do this? Yeah, that is a key piece of the puzzle. In some ways, Xi Jinping was coming into this 
Summit in a much weaker position than he was a year or so ago. You, you know, there was a time when it felt as if he was riding high. He had just installed all of his loyalists into the senior ranks of the government. But now, of course, the Chinese economy is struggling, as as many people know, but also more broadly. And this is one of the things I sensed on the ground when I was there recently. There's just a real sense of frustration. One of the words people use in Chinese is they feel disheartened. Jusang. It's a big deal. And that's a big change from where it was when he came into office a decade ago. And I think that puts him a little off balance. He came into the room today. You heard him making very clear indications that he wanted this summit to be a success. You know, David a moment ago was describing how the positive message in the Chinese media, that's not by accident. The message has already come down before they even met that they wanted this to be a success as much as the Americans did. And yet, Evan, I mean, the issues that you know, there's a lot of issues that are extraordinarily difficult for the U.S. and China to agree on. Yeah, that's really the, in some ways, the short-term fact is that they came out of here with a productive, successful civil meeting. The long-term fact is that they are still uh, arrayed across a whole range of issues on, on very opposite terms. I'll give you just one fascinating little detail from the opening remarks today that uh, Xi Jinping, when when he was uh, just framing the meeting, he said that he does not share the view that these two countries are in a competition, which is, after all, at the core of how the United States sees it. But the Chinese would rather not have a competition. They would rather the United States, frankly, move out of the way, take on a smaller role in the Middle East, in Ukraine, in Taiwan. And that is a core disagreement between these two. And that's not going away. That's what you need now, the infrastructure of things like military to military communications to try to manage on a day to day basis. MJ, um, you know, Dana was talking about how rare it is to have a press conference with uh, President Biden. How, how long has it been and how long is this expected to be? Do we know? Yeah, this is just the third uh, solo press conference that the president uh, is taking part in this year. It is certainly rare for reporters covering him regularly to get this kind of open and formal opportunity uh, to ask him questions. Uh, one thing that I just wanted to note, uh, just jumping in on what Evan was noting before, uh, just based on our reporting, uh, I think it is clear that U.S. officials would sort of carefully and privately say that the dynamics at play for President Xi uh, back at at home domestically uh, probably had a lot to do with the interactions that we saw playing out tonight uh, between the two leaders. Uh, of course, U.S. officials are very attuned to the fact uh, that there are serious economic problems that President Xi is facing at home. And our reporting was uh, that in the months of planning that went into this summit, that there was a level of anxiety and a level of concern about uh, how this would look for President Xi uh, as he was visiting the U.S for just a couple of days. Uh, you know, this is not unusual, of course. We are talking about a foreign trip uh, for the leader of China, uh, but U.S. officials involved in the planning of this summit uh, saying that that level of concern and the attention to detail uh, down to where he would sit, what he would see when he looked out the window, that it really was sort of unprecedented. Uh, so again, I think uh, U.S. officials might argue uh, that the dynamics that are at play for uh, President Xi back at home uh, had very much to do with the sort of decision uh, to engage U.S. officials in this way right now, uh, and that maybe U.S. officials sort of took advantage of uh, the opportunity here uh, that was 
uh, available to them, uh, taking into account the fact that uh, they could make the case to their Chinese counterparts, uh, if you did X, Y, and Z, it could be to your benefit, particularly uh, on the economic front, Anderson. Yeah, David Culver, I mean, what is the, what is the benefit to, to China of if there is going to be a, a shift in, in tone, a shift in relations? Yeah, and if they're going to take any action, you can bet they're going to want something in exchange. There's going to have to be something that the U.S. goes forward with. And as Evan pointed out, it's a struggling economy. It is a really tough situation right now. Youth unemployment at an all-time high. You've got a housing market there that's in crisis. And so what President Xi is trying to do in many ways is trying to figure out how he can boost his economy and perhaps relying on American companies and perhaps even wooing them to go back. Many of them, I can tell you, left not only during the pandemic, but in the months after because of Beijing's crackdown on corporations. I mean, the government was going after and raiding offices in Shanghai of American companies. And so now you have just a couple of hours from now, President Xi hosting a welcome Xi dinner, if you will, and it's being put on by two U.S.-based organizations. They focus on U.S.-China relations and in part focusing on bettering business relations. And this is a dinner in which President Xi is hoping to rub elbows with some of these folks and, and perhaps convince them to come back to China if they've left or expand their reach within China. The issue that these businesses have is can we trust you, President Xi? Can we trust that the government isn't going to go forward with another crackdown? And can we trust that we can get any profit that we make within China out of China? These are all really complicated situations that I think folks are going to be hesitant, certainly within the business world, where many years they saw a lot of money coming out of China and saw it as a really opportunistic place to be doing business. Now they're not so sure. So that dinner, by the way, that's going to be happening tonight, Anderson, is really controversial. U.S. lawmakers are weighing on in on this. You, you have the chairman of the House Select Committee that focuses on the CCP saying that this is an unconscionable dinner because of the price that it will cost for those who want to pay to attend. And that's $40,000 for those who want a seat at the table with President Xi. So they're looking into this. They want names. CCP is the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, Ambassador Orrin, uh, when President Biden spoke in Tel Aviv, uh, you and I spoke that day. You were very effusive about his support for Israel. Have you, do you see any shift in the administration's stance? Obviously, the administration is under, is under pressure from a lot of different quarters. Yeah, I think good, good to be with you, Anderson. Listen, they've, uh, they've shifted a bit on the question of the humanitarian pauses, the humanitarian corridors. Uh, and the Israeli government has now, I think, tried to meet the president halfway on those measures, understanding that the president is under that type of pressure. But on the crucial, crucial issue of the ceasefire, um, the president and his administration have not wavered a bit. They understand that the ceasefire means Hamas wins, Hamas gets away with mass murder, and they realize that a ceasefire for Israel is something close to death. I mean, we will not be able to restore internal security or restore our regional deterrence. Uh, Iran will internalize that they can hit us with impunity, and the international community will impose a ceasefire. Uh, so I, I don't know how Israel becomes, you know, remains habitable after that point. So there, the president, uh, the secretary of state have really stood steadfast. Uh, John Kirby getting up every night for the press, the White House press cart, and, and saying that we are against a ceasefire. And, and I think now it's also a bipartisan support, as we saw in the, in the mass rally yesterday in Washington. Dana Bash, I mean, uh, MJ was saying this is only the, the third uh press conference he's been involved with, uh, mm -hmm. I think she said that this, uh, th this year, um, it is a, a small amount. Um, obviously, there's 
a lot of questions about his uh, his stamina, his his uh, his abilities. There's going to be a lot of people watching this uh, to look uh, at that and to see how he answers questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no question. Whenever uh, President Biden is asked about those issues, something that there's nothing he can do about, which is his age, his answer is watch me. And uh, this is an opportunity for uh, the American people, people around the world to actually do just that, to watch him. But much more importantly, to really on the very, very big issues before him in his presidency in this country internationally, like you just talked about with uh, with Ambassador Oren. I mean, the, the, certainly he has been extremely steadfast when it comes to Israel. Day uh, with uh, Xi Jinping, but also a lot of eyes on him less than a year away from his reelection. Lots of questions about domestic issues. Unclear if he's going to get those questions about the economy, about the economy doing better. Even this week, we saw numbers uh, where they matter the most to people. The price of eggs, the price of other goods, they are better. The inflation numbers are going down. So why don't people credit him? with that. Those are the messages that if he does give a lengthy press conference, that reporters will be uh, able to talk to him about, not just international, not just the raw political, but some of the policies that he's hoping he can get reelected on. Uh, and he's been trying to do it more and more, a uh, chance to, to to make his case. But again, uh, get some probing questions from those who cover him every day. Yeah, Evan Osnos, in, in terms of what the U.S. could do for China, or China would be looking specifically from uh, to the U.S. for, what, what do you think is top of the list? Well, we know what China wants. I think, you know, there is, it's not a, it's, it's a meaningful fact that Xi Jinping has left this meeting and gone directly to that banquet that David mentioned earlier uh, with business leaders. You know, a big reason for this whole visit was that Xi Jinping wanted to essentially go out into the world and signal to the global business community, to investors who have gotten very nervous about China, that he gets it, that he is, in a sense, uh, that he recognizes that he needs to show that he's paying attention to the economic troubles at home and that he's not pursuing a conflict with the United States, which, after all, would be a disaster for the world and for the world economy. So on some level, his presence here is a sign that he is willing to acknowledge the scale of concern. And um, but I think in terms of specifics, look, what he would really like is for the United States to say we're not going to impose further restrictions on high technology exports to China that would go into advanced chip conduct uh, semiconductors, uh, AI. He's not going to get that. The United States is at this point not backing off from that strategy. That is uh, a major piece of how Biden imagines the future of this relationship. And so they have to come to some sort of accommodation. And obviously, Evan, the issue of Taiwan is is a big, uh, you know, disagreement point of contention, obviously, between the U.S. and China. It is. In some ways, it's the core point of contention. And in some ways, actually, what this meeting was about was not changing their position. Um, it was about underscoring how uh, how emphatic the United States is about two big things. One it is not actually supporting independence for Taiwan. It supports the status quo, which is the self-governing status that Taiwan has now. But also, 
indicating that the United States is not backing off of the idea of defending Taiwan in the event of an attack. It's a really precise balance, but that's one of the, the key reasons why they wanted to have this meeting. There's a real fear in Beijing. I heard it when I was there, and you hear it from Chinese uh, visitors, that they think the United States is moving towards supporting independence in Taiwan. If that happened, it would be, from China's perspective, a five-alarm fire. And Joe Biden wanted to send the very clear message that, no, our position has not changed. We will defend Taiwan, and we want it to stay in the safe status that it enjoys right now. And David Culver, as we wait for President Biden uh, to make uh, remarks and to, to take questions, in terms of the precursor chemicals uh, involved, the precursor ingredients for, for fentanyl, is there a... I mean, for some of those chemicals, are there legitimate reasons for them to be manufactured? And I mean, how easy is it? Are we talking about shutting down factories in China or just the distribution supply networks? It's a fair point because there are a long list of chemicals that you you can look at here that would be used to create fentanyl, not to, to provide a how-to here, but certainly there are some that can be used for other things and are used for, for things uh, that are, are in everyday life, you know, in paints and nail polish remover, things such as that. However, what you have to look at is the quantities. So the way it, it was likened to me by one federal investigator was if somebody's going into a, a CVS and picking up one pack of Sudafed, maybe a couple packs, all right, not all that concerning. If they're picking up 500 packs of Sudafed, that raises Okay, the president is so walking out right now. Uh, David Culver, this. thank you. We're going to check back in with everybody afterward. Let's listen. Please have a seat. As you know, I just concluded several hours the meetings with President Xi, and I believe they were some of the most constructive and productive discussions we've had. I've been meeting with President Xi since both of us were vice president over 10 years ago. Our meetings have always been candid and straightforward. We haven't always agreed, but they've been straightforward. And today, build on the groundwork related over the past several months of high-level diplomacy between our teams, we've made some important progress, I believe. First, I'm pleased to announce that after many years of being on hold, we are restarting cooperation between the United States and PRC on counter-narcotics. In 2019, you may remember, China took action to greatly reduce the amount of fentanyl shipped directly from China to the United States. But in the years since that time, the challenge has evolved from finished fentanyl to fentanyl chemical ingredients and, and pill presses, which are being shipped without control. And by the way, some of these pills are being inserted in other drugs like cocaine. A lot of people are dying. More people in the United States between the ages of 18 and 49 die from fentanyl than from guns, car accidents, or any other cause, period. So today, with this new understanding, we're taking action to significantly reduce the flow of precursor chemicals and pill presses from China to the Western Hemisphere. It's going to save lives, and I appreciate President Xi's commitment on this issue. President Xi and I tasked our teams to maintain a policy and law enforcement coordination going forward to make sure it works. I also want to thank the bipartisan congressional delegation to China, led by Leader Schumer, in October for supporting efforts uh, this effort so strongly. Secondly, and this is critically important, we're reassuming military-to-military -military contacts, direct contacts. As a lot of you press know, follow this, that's been cut off and it's been very worrisome. That's how accidents happen, misunderstandings. 
So we're back to direct, open, clear, direct communications on a, on a, ba on a direct basis. Vital miscalculations on either side can, are, can cause real, real trouble with, a, with a, a, a country like China or any other major country. And so I think we're made real progress there as well. And thirdly, we're going to get our experts together to discuss risk and safety issues associated with artificial intelligence. As many of you who travel with me around the world, almost everywhere I go, every major leader wants to talk about the impact of artificial intelligence. These are tangible steps in the right direction to determine what's useful and what's not useful, what's dangerous and what's acceptable. Moreover, there are evidence of cases that, uh, that I've made all along. The United States will continue to compete vigorously with the PRC, but will manage that competition responsibly so it doesn't veer into conflict or accidental conflict. And where it's possible, where our interests are coincide, we're going to work together like we did on fentanyl. That's what the world expects of us. The rest of the world expects, not just in people in China and the United States, but the rest of the world expects that of us. And that's what the United States is going to be doing. <clears throat> Today, President Xi and I also exchanged views on a range of regional and global issues, including Russia's refusal and brutal war to stop the war and brutal war of aggression against Ukraine and, and conflict in Gaza. And as I always do, I raised areas where the United States has concerns about the PRC's actions, including detained and, ex and, uh, and, and exit banned U.S. citizens, human rights and corrective uh, coercive activities in the South China Sea. We discussed all three of those things. I gave them names of individuals that we think are being held, and hopefully we can get them released as well. No agreement on that. No agreement on that. I also stressed the importance of peace and stability in the Taiwan Straits. It's clear that we object to, Beijing, to Beijing's non-market economic practices and disadvantage that, that disadvantage American businesses and workers, and that we'll continue to address them. And I named what I thought a number of those were. I welcome the positive steps we've taken today. And it's important for the world to see that we're implementing the approach in the best traditions of American diplomacy. We're talking to our competitors and the key and, and just, just talking, just made blunt with one another. So there's no misunderstanding as a key element to maintaining global stability and delivering for the American people. And in the months ahead, we're going to continue to preserve and pursue high-level diplomacy at the PRC in both directions, to keep the lines of communication open, including between President Xi and me. He and I agreed that each one of us could pick up the phone, call directly, and we'd be heard immediately. And that's uh, — now I'd like to be able to take some questions, if I may. And I'm told that Dimitri of the Financial Times has the first question. Uh, thank you. And as an Irishman, I apologize for bringing the rain. Well, holy God, I wouldn't have called on you if I'd known that. No, I'm teasing. Go ahead. Fire right to me. President Biden, given that America is playing a key role in two major global crises in Ukraine and in Gaza, does that alter your previous commitment to defend Taiwan from any Chinese military action? And did Xi Jinping outline the conditions under which China would attack Taiwan? Look, I reiterated what I've said since I've become president and what every previous president of late has said, that uh, we, uh, we maintain the agreement that there is a one-China policy and that uh, I'm not going to uh, change that. That's not going to change. And so uh, that's about the extent to which we discussed it. 
Uh, next question, sorry, was Bloomberg. It appears, among other issues, that your agreement with uh, President Xi over fentanyl will require, will require a lot of trust and verification to ensure success curbing those drug flows. I'm wondering, after today, and considering all that you've been through in the past year, would you say, Mr. President, that you trust President Xi? And secondly, if I could, on Taiwan, uh, you've, you and your administration officials have warned President Xi in China about interference in the upcoming elections. I'm wondering what would the consequences be if they do, in fact, interfere in the election? Well, I, may, I had that discussion with him, too, made it clear I didn't expect any interference, any at all. And we had that discussion as, as he was leaving. Look, do I trust you? I trust but verify, as that old saying goes. That's where I am. And, uh, you know, uh, we're in a competitive relationship, China and the United States. But uh, my responsibility is to, uh, to make, it, uh, make this rational and manageable so it, uh, so it doesn't result in conflict. That's what I'm all about. That's what this is about. To find a place where we uh, can come together and uh, where we find mutual interests that, uh, but most importantly, from my perspective, that are interested in the American people. That's what this is about. And that's exactly what we'll do. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we're in a situation where we agreed that uh, fentanyl and its, precur its precursors will be curbed substantially and the pill presses. That's a big, that's a big movement. They're doing, uh, and by the way, uh, you know, I, I won't, I guess I shouldn't identify where it occurred, but John, I know uh, two people near where I live. Their kids literally, as I said, uh, strange, they woke up dead. Somebody had inserted in, whether he, the young man did or not, inserted in a, a, a drug he was taking, fentanyl. Again, I, I don't, I hope you don't have any experience with knowing anyone, but this is the largest killer, people in that age category. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess the other thing I think is most important is that uh, since I've, I've spent more time with President Xi than any world leader has, just because we were vice presidents uh, his president uh, was President Hu. I'm not making a joke. President Hu and uh, and President Obama thought we should get to know one another. wasn't appropriate for the president of the United States to be walking dealing with the vice president. So we met. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was 68 hours of just face to face, just us and a simultaneous interpreter. So I I think I I know the man. I know his modus operandi. He's been. Uh, we have disagreements. He has a different view than I have on a lot of things, but he's been straight. I don't mean that it's good, bad, or indifferent. He's just been straight. And uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we, as I said, the thing that I, I find most assuring is he raised, and I fully agree, that either one of us have any concern, Mr. Ambassador, any concern about anything between our nations or happening in our region. We should pick up the phone and call one another, and we'll take the call. That's an important progress. Uh, I am embarrassed. I think it's CBS, but I can't remember who is CBS. I'm sorry. Uh, Thank you, Mr. President. Oh. Dead day. <laughs> sorry. I apologize.
Uh, can you stress the importance for competition in China? It does not fear into conflict or competition. In the past two years, there have been 180 incidents of Chinese aggression against U.S. aircraft in the Pacific. And, of course, ramped up military activity in the South China. If that does not count, fearing then what does? Well, first of all, none of it did end up in a con conflict, number one. Number two, uh, you may recall I did a few little things like get the quad together, allow Australia to have access to new submarines, moving in the direction of working with the Philippines. So uh, our actions speak louder than our words. He fully understands. Question about the idea of trade on the Oshima um, Hospital as it is contained and out must that is there. This week you also said that we must protect hospitals. So when you weigh the target against the number of civilians by the hospital, is the operation way just? Well, look. We did discuss uh, this, by the way, um, but we can't let it get out of control. Here's the situation. You have a circumstance where the first war crime is being committed by Hamas by having their headquarters, their military, hidden under a hospital. And that's a fact. That's what's happened. Israel did not go in with large number of troops, did not raid, did not rush everything down. They've gone in, and they've gone in with their soldiers carrying weapons, their guns. They were uh, told, uh, told, let me be precise. We've discussed the need for them to be incredibly careful. You have a circumstance where you know there is a fair number of Hamas terrorists. Hamas has already said publicly that they plan on attacking Israel again, like they did before, through cutting babies' heads off to burning, burning women and children alive. And so the idea that they're going to just stop and not do anything is not realistic. This is not the carpet bombing. This is a different thing. We're going through these tunnels. They're going into the hospital. And if you notice, I, I was mildly preoccupied today. I apologize. I didn't see everything. But what I did see, whether I haven't had it confirmed yet, I am asked my team to answer the question. But what happened is they're also bringing in incubators. They're bringing in other, uh, other means to help the people in the hospital. And they've given the doctors and, I'm told, the doctors and nurses and personnel an opportunity to get out of harm's way. So this is a different story than I believe what was occurring before with indiscriminate bombing. Uh, what do you got? Washington Post. I think that's right. Thank you. Mr. President. Oh, there you are. Sorry, I couldn't see in the light. Uh, Mr. President, Israel's war in Gaza more than 11,000 Palestinians just for a month. And I'm created sorry, you're breaking up. I didn't. Israel's war in Gaza has killed more than 11,000 Palestinians just over a month and created a humanitarian disaster. Israeli officials have said this war can 
months or even years. Have you communicated to Prime Minister Netanyahu any sort of deadline or time frame for how long you are willing to support Israel in this operation? Are you comfortable with the operation going on indefinitely? And is there any deal underway to free hostages? Thank you. Yes, no, working backwards, forward. Look, I have uh, been deeply involved in moving on the uh, hostage negotiation. Um, and uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself here because I don't know what's happened in the last four hours. But uh, I have uh, we've gotten great uh, cooperation from the Qataris. Uh, I've spoken with them as well a number of times. I think the pause and that is really that the Israelis have agreed to is down to well, I'm getting too much detail. I, I know, Mr. Secretary, I'm going to stop. The uh, but I am. I am mildly hopeful. I'm mildly hopeful. Um, with regard to uh, when is this going to stop, I think it's going to stop when the uh, when Hamas no longer maintains the capacity to murder and abuse and and uh, and just do horrific things to uh, the Israelis, and they're in. And they still think that, at least as of this morning, they still thought they could. I, uh, I, I guess the best way for me to say it is that uh, I take a look. Uh, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, acknowledges they have an obligation to use uh, as much caution as they can in going after their targets. It's not like they're rushing in the hospital, knocking down doors and, you know, pulling people aside and shooting people indiscriminately. Um, but uh, Hamas, as I said, said they plan on attacking Israelis again. And uh, this is a, a terrible dilemma. Uh, so what do you do? I think that uh, Israel is also taking risks themselves about their folks being killed and one-to-one -one going through these hospital rooms, hospital halls. But one thing has been established is that Hamas does have headquarters, weapons, materiel below this hospital, and I suspect others. But how long it's going to last, I don't know. Look, I made it clear to the Israelis that um, to Bibi and to his war cabinet, that I think the only ultimate answer here is a two-state solution that's real. We've got to get to the point where there is an ability to be able to even talk without worrying about whether or not we're just dealing with uh, — they're dealing with Hamas that's going to engage in the same activities they did over the past uh, — on, on the 7th. So it, it's uh, — but I can't tell. I'm not a fortune teller. I can't tell you how long it's going to last. But I can tell you, I don't think it ultimately ends until there's a two-state solution. I made it clear to the Israelis, I think it's a big mistake to, for them to think they're going to occupy Gaza and maintain Gaza. I don't think that works. And so we're going to, I think you're going to see efforts to uh, bring along — well, I shouldn't go in anymore because that's been things I've been negotiating with Arab countries and others about what the next steps are. But uh, anyway. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. This ends the press conference.
when Hamas said they plan on doing the same thing again, what they did, what they did on the 7th. They're going to go in, they want to slaughter Israelis. They want to do it again. They've said it out loud. They're not kidding about it. They're not backing off. And so I just asked a rhetorical question. I wonder what we would do if that were the case. On the hostages, though, you said we're coming for you. What do you mean to the American hostages when you said, hey, oh. we're coming for you? What I meant was, I'm doing everything in my power to get you out. Coming to help you, to get you out. I don't mean sending military in to get them. Is that what you thought I might mean? No, no, no. I was not talking about the military. I was talking about we, you're on our mind every single day, five, six times a day. I'm working on how I can be helpful in getting the hostages released and have a period of time where there's a pause long enough to let that happen. And there are somewhere between 50 and 100 hostages there, uh, we think. And sir, was a three-year-old American child? You're darn right it is. That's why I'm not going to stop till we get her. President Biden speaking to. Can you tell us what kind of evidence the U.S. has seen that Hamas has a command center under Al-Shifa Hospital? No, I can't tell you. I won't tell you. Do you feel absolutely confident based on what you know that that is the truth? Yes. And Mr. President, after today, would you still refer to President Xi as a dictator? This is a term uh, that you used earlier this well, look, he is. I mean, he's a dictator in the sense that he, he is a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that's based on former government totally different than ours. Anyway, the most President Biden speaking to reporters after a roughly four-hour summit meeting with President uh, China's President Xi Jinping. Back now uh, with the panel. Dana, first of all, what do you make of the president's remarks just now? He spoke about uh, fentanyl pill presses, uh, about getting China cooperation on mm-hmm. uh, cutting down fentanyl pill presses, precursor, uh, movement on precursor chemicals. He talked about direct military to military contacts mm-hmm. between the U.S. Uh, and China, as well as addressing risks of artificial intelligence. Yeah, I mean, trust but verify, uh, which uh, is really an important answer to a really good question, which was, do you trust Xi? Particularly given the fact that during his campaign in 2020, then Vice President Biden talked a lot about what he repeated today, which is how many hours he had spent with Xi Jinping and how much he knew him and uh, the fact that he could use that if he became president. Well, today was a really, really important test of using that history that they have together. And, and yes, it wasn't, there, there wasn't a, a huge breakthrough on, on economics and other issues that have been um, dividing these two countries who compete with one another uh, for, for, for decades. But on the basics, just take, I mean, fentanyl was one thing you mentioned, Anderson. Just take uh, the fact that now, there is communication reopened between the two countries' militaries. That's a big deal because it was uh, it was blown open thanks to a couple of things, including the fact that China sent a spy balloon uh, floating over uh, America for a long time. So, serious. It's it's obvious that he's trying to be hopeful, but also pretty uh, clear that there is a lot of work to do. And Anderson, if I may, on Israel. 
it was really striking how much he is staying the course on saying multiple times uh, that Hamas Israel again, and they must be destroyed, must be uh, taken off the table, because if not, they will reconstitute and they will do exactly what they promised to do, giving no timeline to the end of this uh, this war, except for when Hamas is fully destroyed. And I thought that was really noteworthy because obviously he is facing a huge uh, increasing pressure uh, to to call for a ceasefire. He's not going there at all, but not even close in his comments tonight. Uh, let's bring in Ambassador, uh, uh, former Ambassador uh, Michael Orton. Uh, Ambassador, I'm wondering, to Dana's point, what you made of, of the president's comments about Israel. I, I couldn't agree more with Dana. Uh, it was extraordinary. At least half the, the questions from the press corps were not about U.S.-China's relationship, but rather about America's policy toward Israel and the, and the Gaza conflict. And I think, you know, in contrast to what has been said in recent days that America's policy toward this conflict has weakened America's position in the world. On the contrary, I think that the president comes into this meeting with Xi from a position of power, showing that America, after a long period of isolationism, is willing to project power again on a massive scale. These two very large striker forces uh, is willing to stick by an ally in the face of growing international pressure. Um, I think it sends a message about America's commitment to Taiwan. I think it says about America's ability to project power again. He actually came, the president came into this conference much stronger because of his position. And then he reiterated it tonight in the face of these very, you know, very pressing uh, questions from uh, from journalists saying, are you are you going to put a time element to this? Are you going to agree to a ceasefire? He said no. He stuck by his position, did not give an inch. And I think that strengthens America's position vis-a-vis -vis China. I think it strengthens America's position vis-a-vis -vis Russia and the entire world. Everybody wants to see whether America's going to stick by its ally and whether America's going to be able to project that power. Very powerful, I thought. Ambassador, he did seem to, I don't, I don't, he made two remarks that I think are going to get attention. One, he talked about believing that there were 50 to 100 hostages there. That's obviously lower than the 240 number. I mean, obviously nobody knows exactly how many hostages there are because none of these groups, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, others who may be holding hostages, have given any proof of life. So there's plenty of people who are missing. It's not clear if all those people are, are being held hostage. Uh, I'm wondering what you make of that number. And also, he seemed to say something about Israel having agreed to a pause. Uh, and then he stopped himself looking at, at the Secretary of State, uh, Antony Blinken. Uh, I don't know. If he's, he said, I think that the pause that the Israelis have agreed to, I assume he's talking about any potential pause that might be part of a deal for hostages coming out being negotiated with with Qatar? That, that's the way I understood it, Anderson. There's been lots of press reports about a, a, a proposal to have a pause three to five days. It's not quite clear to release a certain number of hostages, uh, young people, sick people and old people. Um, the Israeli government has uh, firmly denied those or refused to comment about it. And I think that's what the president was referring to. The absolute number of hostages remains around 240. David Culver, President Biden just doubled down on referring to President Xi as a as a dictator. Um, wondering what you made of, of his remarks tonight. 
it sounded like he had stepped away from the mic a bit when, when he was asked that. So I was, I was trying to listen closely. So he did clarify that he stood by that title. That, I think that's going to be interesting. And, and, and in the sense, Anderson, is I want to see what, if anything, state media will do with that in a day or so. And the reason I say that is because if they choose to totally ignore it and to not make any mention of it, it suggests that the narrative coming from the top, coming from President Xi Jinping, is to stay focused, stay the course on trying to keep these relations warm and to move in a direction of open and honest communication, as they'd like to describe, and mutual trust. If they start to make a big deal about that in the coming days, it'll suggest that there are still issues with this relationship, that it is far from rosy, and that there is perhaps going to be more division to come. So I, I am curious to see what will be made of that coming in the coming days. Uh, MJ Lee, I want to go to you. I believe you're the one who asked the question. It was off mic, uh, so it was hard for our viewers here. Just explain what you asked and what he said. Yeah, the question that I asked President Biden, or one of the questions I asked at the end, was whether he still uh, considers President Xi a dictator, given that this was a comment that he had made earlier this year. Uh, and given that, obviously, the, the two sides have said that there was a lot of progress made in the relationship, uh, and President Biden said, yes, he still is, uh, that that hasn't changed. I thought that that was incredibly noteworthy, uh, sort of signaling that even while there is some progress progress on uh, building up those diplomatic channels and making sure that there is an improvement uh, in the two countries' relations, that there are some things that are fundamental uh, to China that he isn't going to forget. Uh, he also said when he was asked by a different reporter whether he would trust Xi Jinping, uh, he said he believes in the ethos of trust uh, but verify. So uh, I thought that was incredibly noteworthy. Uh, and Anderson, something else that really struck me during this 20-minute press conference is uh, how much we are seeing President Biden and the Biden administration having to answer questions about Israel and Israel's conduct uh, in the Israel-Hamas war. We saw the number of questions that he received from reporters uh, about the civilian death toll in Gaza. Uh, of course, I asked him a question at the end uh, about whether he feels confident uh, that there is a Hamas control center under the Al-Shifa hospital, and he said, yes, he does feel confident, but he can't uh, get into the details. And I think, you know, everywhere we go, we are really just seeing signs of how much this conflict is following the president around. You know, when I uh, walk into the White House every day uh, for my job, uh, we, it is uh, pretty typical to be able to hear protests of some kind uh, that is related to this conflict. Uh, it wasn't that long ago that the entrance to the White House uh, had uh, fingerprints, handprints that were supposed to mimic uh, bloodstains with words like genocide Joe. Uh, and here in San Francisco, while the president has been here to attend the APEC summit, uh, just last night when we were walking around uh, the city of San Francisco, we saw a really sizable uh, rally protest, pro-Palestinian protests, and many of the signs specifically uh, mentioning President Biden. So I think uh, this moment here sort of captures and really brings to light uh, how many uh, questions President Biden himself, uh, U.S. officials are getting about this conflict as uh, increasingly people, including in his own administration, are starting to voice serious, serious concerns uh, about Israel's conduct. Uh, and Anderson, if I could just note uh, one more uh, very interesting moment uh, that stood out to me uh, and helpful because I was sitting uh, so close to the front row. I was in the second row. 
the first row of reporters uh, in this press conference. Uh, when President Biden was asked about the ongoing hostage negotiations, uh, he said that he was mildly hopeful. Uh, he uh, started to talk about uh, a pause that Israel may have agreed to. Uh, and then he looked over at Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who was sitting right in front of him, and made some remark about how perhaps he shouldn't get too much into the detail. And Secretary Blinken shaking his head, uh, shaking his, his head no, definitely do not get into too much of the details. I thought it was a really interesting moment that captured uh, just how sensitive these negotiations have been. Uh, the president, of course, uh, has been sort of optimistic all along, at least in uh, what he has said in his public remarks, that he uh, will ultimately end up seeing these American hostages and others uh, get out. But these negotiations are ongoing. And you can tell just from that very interaction that those talks have been incredibly, incredibly sensitive. Evan Osnos, uh, I'm wondering what stood out to you in the president's remarks. And also, given, I mean, you have written, you've done a study of President Biden. You wrote a, a great biography of, uh, of the president. Um, talk about what you saw and, and how he performed. Yeah, I was struck by his returning several times to this idea of being blunt. You know, he said it on a multiple, on a range of issues. Talking about China, he said the importance is for us to be blunt with one another so there's no misunderstanding. That's especially important when it comes to China because Xi Jinping has consolidated so much power at the very top that, frankly, the Biden administration isn't confident that when they go through other channels that they're getting a clear message to him. And so he said this rather unusual thing. I mean, tonight he said, we talked about the idea that I should be able to pick up the phone and call him and he should be able to pick up the phone directly and call me. I will take the call. I mean, that is, if there is a core concept in Biden's diplomacy going across decades and across issues, it's the idea of being candid, being clear, perhaps even a little bit too candid sometimes. MJ was drawing attention to a moment when he almost perhaps said something that they're still working through privately. He was also candid when he talked about what he's uh, discussed with uh, Bibi Netanyahu and with the Israeli government, the idea that in his mind, there will not be an ultimate solution here until there is a two-state solution. So he's he's not shying away from the points of disagreement in any of these crucial issues. And it just highlights, frankly, how broad a range of complex issue this administration is contending with at one time. Yeah, Dan, I mean, certainly his talk about a two-state solution uh, obviously is at odds with uh, a number of members of the Netanyahu government, including the prime minister. Currently, it seems as though that is true. I interviewed the prime minister over the weekend, uh, specifically on the notion of a, of a post, what Gaza would look like after the war and uh, whether he would support the Palestinian Authority going in there. And he pushed back on the notion that the PA has the capability to do it because of uh, all of the, the, the negative attributes uh, that have been pretty well documented. And so the question, he said that there needs to be a civilian leadership that's reimagined. It doesn't necessarily mean no two-state solution. It just means that maybe the PA, which is the entity that the Biden government, the Biden administration very much said should go in back in uh, to Gaza, even though they were there for not very long before Hamas ended up taking over uh, in the mid 2000s. So, yes, he, he um, is, is pushing that. And I think it's if you kind of take a step back, he mentioned this again tonight, Anderson, it's because he doesn't he wants to make very clear 
that Israel has no business staying in Gaza after the war. There should be no occupation at all by, uh, he, he didn't say Israeli troops, but by Israel. And I think he, what he meant was governing. And Ambassador Orton, uh, what, how do you think the president's comments about a two-state solution are going to be felt, are going to be received by Netanyahu and his government? Um, maybe my members of the government won't be particularly thrilled by it. And let's talk about the Israeli public in general. I think the Israeli public will be open to any realistic venue that will change the status quo, perhaps out a peaceful resolution. There's a tremendous amount of skepticism among the Israeli public, and I'm talking about people even center and center left who say, you know, the, the head of the Palestinian Authority now is Mahmoud Abbas. He's in the 18th year of his four-year term. He won't stand for election because he's free. He knows that Hamas would win on the West Bank as well. And Israelis used to say, well, you know, if we're going to have a, a, a Palestinian state there, it could turn into Gaza, and it's going to turn. It's going to be 20 times worse because it's the longest border that Israel has. Uh, and put most of uh, Israel not just in rocket range, but in rifle range. So they'd have to find a, a legitimate and stable uh, leadership there that is willing to sign on the dotted line of a peace agreement and actually keep it and keep it in a peaceful way and convince the Israeli public of that. Um, I think that's worth, certainly it's worth exploring, and I would wish the president the best of, of success with it. it. It won't be an easy task. People have tried it in the past, but I think the Israeli public will be open to any yeah. opportunity for peace. Ambassador Orton, appreciate your time. Uh, all our panelists as well. We'll be right back. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. The leaders of the world's two largest economies broke a lengthy chill today. Where the U.S.-China relationship goes from here is part of a story that will play out in the days and weeks to come. For now, with the first chapter written, the news continues with Caitlin Collins and The Source. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.